welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. So we've been talking about what we believe and the importance of those beliefs and how that shapes us and it shapes the ways in which we worship. It shapes who we know God to be and how we experience him. So this week, we're going to look at God's redemption plan and what we believe about that and how we experience it. God's redemption plan has been in the play since the beginning. And it's not just his response to our sin, but his continuous pursuit of us before, during, and after. We're going to spend some time in Genesis today quite a bit. And just FYI, I've been down a rabbit hole of Genesis for about a year now. So um, this is just a wonderful book to me. It, it's where it all begins and everything is laid out so beautifully in it. And so there's just multiple ways that we see God moving and that thread going throughout the story is just beautiful and it's amazing. So we're going to look at that a little bit today. And we're going to start in the Garden of Eden where God walked and strolled. That's how it was described in scripture, that he walked and strolled. They were the way Eden is described and the way the rivers flow, we know that Eden was up high, that it was on a mountaintop. It's where heaven and earth overlap. And that is a temple or a tabernacle. And so we're going to see that theme come up as well again. We're going to see how God continues to pursue us and create ways for us to be in his presence and for him to dwell among us. But we know what happens. The snake enters the story and introduces doubt and questions. So we're going to read this morning from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, that, w- that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. (laughs) Passes the blame real quick, doesn't he? (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we see a lot of blame going on, don't we? (laughs) So 
in the ancient Near East culture, the serpent would have been seen that he was kind of already a symbol for chaos and disorder. And the idea that he didn't belong in a divinely ordered world. The snake symbolized death. In Isaiah, a ruler of Babylon is referred to and described as a snake. He wasn't one of the good ones. And so we can see that that idea of someone who's a deceiver, of someone who is not working for what God wants to achieve in that symbolism. The deceiver didn't want our trust and our devotion placed in God. And this is where doubt enters the picture. The serpent introduces doubt with a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And I want to take just a moment because I think this is so important. Especially, well, I don't know, it applies to adults, but if you're a kid, I want you to listen. This is important, okay? Doubts and questions are not wrong. They are not wrong. They are the way that God reaches in and shapes us and forms us and teaches us and allows us to grow in our faith. The key is who you listen to for those answers. So when you have questions, that's okay. But we need to seek God in those questions. We need to seek his truth and go back to him, go back to his word, go back to his truth. It's when we rely on something else from the world to define our truth or try to redefine our truth, that's when we get into trouble. That's when it's not good. So those questions are not bad. But doubt enters the picture through that question. And Adam and Eve suddenly have an opportunity to exercise their free will. And they question God's intentions. The serpent puts words in God's mouth and twists them to suit his agenda. He doubts God and he doubts God's word. It's not as much about doubt sometimes as I think about the untruth of what he was saying. And they ate and they were ashamed and they attempted to cover themselves and hide. And how often is that our response to sin? How often do we attempt to cover ourselves and hide from the reality of our sin? And here's where they even got more off track because they doubted God's response. They thought they could fix this situation through their own actions. Oh, I'll just get some fig leaves. I'll just hide in these bushes. It'll all be okay. I don't actually have to face my doubt. I don't have to face the untruth that I, that I perpetuated. I don't have to face my disobedience. I'm just gonna pretend everything's okay. How often do we do that? That's all of us right there. They attempted to fix it through their own actions. And this is where it's so important. God's response. God pursues them. He's looking for them in the garden. He begins with the question, where are you? And I want you to listen to this too. This is not just God's response one time in scripture. This is his response to sin every single time. It's his response to disobedience. It's his response to how he consistently, from the Genesis to Revelation, and now through our lives as well, 
calls us back into his presence. He is constantly pursuing us, looking for us, and asking us, where are you? Every time, every sin, God is constantly asking us, where are you? He is in pursuit of our relationship with us, and we have a constant invitation to come out from hiding, to come out from behind that untruth that we've created, to come out from behind that shame, to come out from behind what we have told ourselves is reality and that we are not worthy, and to step back into his presence and his truth and his grace and his love because that's what God's response is. That's what his pursuit of us looks like. And so Yahweh invites Adam and Eve to acknowledge and start to deal with their sin. And and what do they do? They evade the questions, pass the blame. They shift blame with each response. No one takes responsibility for their choices. And they continue to deceive themselves. They continue to doubt God in his word, and they continue to try to handle it on their own. That's not just the story of Adam and Eve. That's our story as well. It's the story of humankind. And there's consequences. And so the consequences come. In one of the books I've been reading, one of the authors talks about how we commonly always heard it referred to as the fall from grace or the fall. And he takes a slightly different approach and says that really what it was, was a failure to achieve what God had intended. That they were in a place where God was walking with them, where they were in God's presence, and God had more life in store for them. He had more things in store for them, more joy, more peace, more provision, And instead of trusting that and having faith in that, they tried to achieve it on their own. So it was more of a failure to achieve than it necessarily was a fall from grace. Wisdom is good, but it must be attained through God. Adam and Eve, through the serpent, attempted to attain it for themselves and attain it their way. They attempted to acquire that wisdom illegitimately. And they tried to acquire it on their own terms. In verse 22, later on in chapter 3, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so they were banished from the Garden of Eden. They were trying to acquire something that God had in store for them but they were trying to do it on their own terms and in their own way. They were trying to take on God's role instead of joining him as they had been created in God's image to do in building the kingdom. They weren't perfect and fell from perfection. What they did is they failed to listen and obey. And as humans, we're called to work alongside God in extending order. That was their job, was to subdue and rule. But to do that within the context of a partnership with God, in the presence of God. And through that, they would attain wisdom. But that wisdom would be from God. And if we're going to be a part of building the kingdom, 
our wisdom has to come from God as well. If we are going to work alongside God, he's got to be the source. Adam and Eve failed to achieve a solution when they doubted God and they lost access to the tree of life, which resulted in sin and death. It wasn't so much paradise lost. It was paradise ungained. It was a failure to receive God's gift of eternal life because they decided their way was better. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. humanity exists outside of Eden in a new reality and we no longer co-rule with God. If you graduated from high school around late 80s, um, which is when I did, um, there was a movie that came out a couple of years after that that was very kind of indicative of our generation called Reality Bites. And it was <laughs> the realization of this group of, of young students um, who actually it's, um, took place in Houston, and it's about them graduating from college and that transition into young adulthood and realizing that all this that they had been working for and thought they were going to, it was laying there for them, wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And I think that's a little bit of what Adam and Eve kind of experienced, what they thought they were going to achieve and get to experience, the reality of it bites. <laughs> it's not good. But God is responding to that. He's pursuing us in the midst of that constantly. And he uses this new environment so that they can learn something really important to see that he is the source of all life. He's trying to still shape them and form them in his image and help them to understand that it's not their schemes or their agenda or, or what they think should happen that's important, but that God is the source of life. He's the source of our food and our children and all of those things. And so God is responding and still pursuing even when they step outside of Eden and God has been restoring ever since. Adam and Eve left with clothing provided by God. And the significance of that clothing is that it was an animal skin and that blood was shed in order to cover their sins. So that's obviously something we're gonna pick up and follow a little bit later. But the, from the very beginning, God knew what it was going to take, that it was going to take bloodshed, that it was going to take the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. I mentioned a few minutes ago about Eden being that, that heaven on earth, that temple on earth. And in Genesis, when Eden is described in chapter two, it's described as having gold and trees and gems and all of this abundance. 
And later on, as we continue to go through Scripture in the Old Testament, guess, guess what God asked them to build the tabernacle out of? Gold, trees, gems. Then guess what later on, where God will reside again with his presence and walk with us, what the temple is built out of? It's all of those things again. It's God continuing to pursue us, to provide a way for us to be in his presence, to provide a way for him to walk with us. In scripture, it also, when God's talking about walking with us, when they describe righteous people in the Old Testament, they'll say he walked with God. When When scripture describes Enoch and Noah and Abram, they are described as walking with God. That God is still present with us. He's still moving with us. He's still constantly restoring, responding, and redeeming us in beautiful, beautiful ways. The tabernacle and the temple are the places where God's presence is. And as we move into the new covenant and Christ, the church, us, the body of Christ become the tabernacle, the place where God dwells and walks and we experience his presence. And we're constantly called into that. God's constantly pursuing us. Leviticus 26, 9 through 12. I'm going to read a little bit shortened version of it. God says, I will turn towards you and make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and listen to this, and my soul will not reject you. Let's say that again. And my soul will not reject you. This is our God in heaven speaking. His soul will not reject us. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. That phrase, my soul will not reject you, has stayed with me all week long this week. It has just been a constant kind of prayer and thought as I've moved through my week, because when I think about that, that's not a surface level love. That's not a, oh, your sins are forgiven, it'll all be okay kind of love. That is a soul that will not reject you, that sees you and sees down into your soul and has sent their son for you because he will not reject you. God needed a new kind of human, one who could deal with the problem at hand and restore humanity back to its ideal role. And Christ achieved where Adam and Eve failed to achieve a solution. Christ succeeded and provided the remedy to sin and death. And God's ideal for creation is his transcendent life. A life-giving presence to be united with earth so that it is transformed into eternal life. That's what we are called into through God's presence. That's what he is doing when he is pursuing us. He has sent his son to die for our sins so that as he continues to pursue us, that his redemption and response continues. We're starting this, this scripture today in Genesis. 
And we see how God created and intended the world to be. And then in Revelation chapter 21, so the, almost the end of Revelation, we see what God has in store. And God says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there with them as their God. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God's constantly pursuing us. He's constantly asking where are you? And our response can be to try to continue to hold up that facade. It can be to try to continue to solve our problem of sin on our own. Or it can be, God, here I am. I'm yours. Your will is my will. Your way is my way. Your truth is my truth. And we have the opportunity to step into that new life that is constantly created and recreated through his love and his grace and his mercy. And we're invited to experience that here on earth and in heaven. So as we prepare to take communion, the worship team can come back up. Communion is a remembrance of God's pursuit of us, of the ways in which he called his people and delivered them from sin and death, provided them manna in the desert and provided for his people. And God continues to do that with us. He calls us to leave sin and death behind, to leave our own agenda, our own sin, and with his whole soul, he loves you and offers you forgiveness. And so as we remember that today, that God's pursuit of us and his plan for redemption and restoration through the word incarnate, through Jesus himself, that we have at our disposal the way, the truth, and the life. And that we are able to experience him in that way. And so when we come to this table, we don't come to a Methodist table. We come to a table that is offering God's grace, the opportunity to encounter him, to walk with him, for him to know your soul. What a beautiful place that is. Because you know what? It's going to be greeted with love and grace and forgiveness. Because that's what we're experiencing. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're doing when we celebrate communion together. We're remembering what Christ did for us on the cross and the empty tomb on that Sunday. And that the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is present in this table, present here with us, and offers that same forgiveness. So as we come forward now, and as we start to think about what that night was like for Jesus. And on that night, he gave himself up for us. He took the bread, gave thanks, and broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance for me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup. 
He gave thanks and gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. May your spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen.